join me in the book of Esther here this evening. Let's take our Bibles together to the book of Esther. Let's turn together in God's Word, looking this evening at Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. Let's turn together to the book of Esther chapter 5. And last time together, we took an excursion. We, instead of continuing into the book of Esther in our study, we took a moment just to hit pause and to remind ourselves and to meditate upon the providence of God. The doctrine of the providence of God, looking at God's hand of providence throughout the scriptures. And I don't want us to forget that. I want us to pick up on that as we come to Esther chapter 5. In Esther chapter 6, this is going to be very important for us to consider. And then as we come, we'll see God's hidden hand of providence in so many ways as he works here in the book of Esther. Join me, Esther chapter 5. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet, all this avails me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman, so that he had the gallows made. 
Well, this is the word of the Lord. Well, we come now and find our place in our study of the book of Esther, coming to Esther chapter 5. And last time together, uh, looking back beyond our message on the providence of God, we were left considering Mordecai's statement to Esther. Your nation needs you, Esther. You are our hope. Not in the sense of you are our only hope. Mordecai reminds Esther that God has ways of working. And he has the chance, he has the possibility here of using Esther if she will stand in the gap of her people. But perhaps the Lord will work in another way if Esther does not stand in the gap on behalf of her people. So there was tension in the text. We saw Esther's assent. She says, okay, well, I will do this thing. She asks Mordecai and the people of God, she asks the Jewish community to begin to fast and to pray. We saw Esther's assent. And now as we come to Esther chapter 5, the theme is really one of plans. Plans. You could say it like this. Esther chapter 5 is a tale of two plans. Esther has a plan. Haman has a plan. Well, let's correct that. Three plans. God ultimately has his plans that will stand. We see that these plans originate really from two different sources as well. As we look at Esther and her response, one plan is birthed from prayer and fasting. The other plan is birthed in the flesh of rage and hatred. One plan was an attempt to save lives, and the other plan is, a, is an attempt or a plan that's created to take a life and then many lives. In fact, when you compare these two plans, one of these plans flows out of selflessness, not thinking of self, thinking of others. The other one's plan is full of selfishness. In fact, we will see ultimately that these two plans have two completely different outcomes. So two individuals living for and being driven by two totally different worldviews. It's, it's a good reminder for us, isn't it, to hit pause this evening and just to hit just to, to pause and meditate and to consider. Sundays are wonderful days to do that, by the way. The Lord's Day has a different rhythm and feel to it, or at least it should, not out of law, but because of grace, to just flow and to meditate upon the wonderful grace of God, to worship with His people. But it's good for us to, to hit pause, and with our weekly rhythms, the Lord's Day is a great day to do it, to say, whose plans am I living out? It, it's good for us to hit pause and just to say, according to whose values am I being driven by? Whose plans are dictating my life? Am I living for my kingdom or am I living for his? Are the values and the priorities of our family's rhythms and our lives, are they, are they being dictated by God's word? Are my dreams and my ambitions, are they flowing from my desires and my flesh and all that I, 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 I want? Do I find myself at the center of it all? Or do I find myself bowing to the hand and will of God and saying, God, thank you for your hand of guidance. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, we don't know quite sure what to do next, but we trust your providential leading and guiding. Lord, may we be found, and maybe in perplexity and mystery, may we be found trusting you, fasting and praying. Friends, it's a good question for us to ask, isn't it? As we think about Esther chapter 5, the theme here is, is plans. We've contrasted these two plans. Do, do the aims of our life, the planning and the decisions and choices that we make, are they about our kingdoms or are they about gods. Our plans, our aims, our ambitions, are they marked by selfishness or selflessness? 
Do the plans that we carry out involve, here's a question for us, living by faith at all? Or is everything so scripted and put into a spreadsheet that we've got our lives planned from now till the next 20 years? Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that having plans and uh, seeking the Lord and having structure is bad. Not, not at all. But again, does our planning and does our life and does our ambitions, does it involve fasting and prayer? Do we ever find ourselves seeking the throne of God, seeking the face of God, saying, God, give me an answer or I don't know what I'm going to do? Well, we have all found ourselves there at different times and places, haven't we? We have found ourselves seeking the face of the Lord, asking the Lord, Lord, is my life advancing your kingdom's wishes, advancing your gospel are the values of your kingdom in my plans or am I manipulating your values to fit into my kingdom? Here at Esther chapter 5, we see that God's people are beginning to see God's hand of providence. They are depending upon him in ways that they have not up until this point. And I want us to notice as we look into this chapter, it's filled in one sense with irony and surprise. And so we come first of all to Esther's petition. Esther's petition. Notice here verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So we come here to this opening, this opening verse. In what condition do we find Esther? Chapter 4 concludes with suspense and tension. What we find here in Esther chapter 5 verse 1 is Esther is prayerful. Esther is prayerful. Now, obvious, yes, but remember the context of Esther. is We're not told a lot until the end of chapter 4 about her walk with God. God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. Remember that formally. The spiritual life of Esther has not been on the forefront up until this point, but all of a sudden we're seeing that Esther is seeking her covenant God. What, how do we find her? What condition do we find Esther? As she makes her petition, we find her prayerful. In fact, she and her maidens, according to the end of chapter 4, they have been praying, they've been fasting. Chapter 4, verse 15 touches on that. She gave that instruction to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present and fast for me, Mordecai. First instruction that we see in the book of Esther that says Esther has a heartbeat for God. She's seeking God. Who is she fasting to and who is she praying to? And it's to God. Now, as we come to chapter 5, verse 1, there is a change of perspective. There's a change of action. No doubt as they change clothes, as she begins to prepare, they have been wearing the Jewish formalities of sackcloth and ashes and following maybe some of those observances in their fasting and in prayers. And as she comes and we see her here prayerful, from the human perspective, her life is at the king's mercy. She knows that. That's a reminder that as... Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, the, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it however he wishes. Don't forget that verse, church. When you find yourself in a very difficult circumstance regarding someone who can, who can direct the outcome of your life from a human perspective, and you say, well, it, it's no good. There's nothing good that will come of this, or I can't change their mind. They're too powerful. They're too removed. They sit in a position of power. What, what can I do? Well, don't forget Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Do, do you remember that when we pray? Do you, do, when we pray for our elected officials and our politicians, 
Do you think that way? Do you think of them as all sovereign in a sense, whether you would articulate it like that or not? Do you think of them as removed and it's no good to even petition or request? Well, friends, pray in faith. And remember that the Lord is the one who reigns, and he can direct, he can turn, and he can guide. So how do we find her? Well, we, we find her prayerful. We also find her deferential. Deferential. Notice in our text here, we see her deference on display in the way that she is dressing. She changes out of her prayer clothes, her fasting clothes, and she puts on her royal dress. She knows the capriciousness of King Xerxes. Esther is coming wisely, thoughtfully, according to protocol. Esther is dressing in a way that shows honor to his position and also honor for her position. Verse 1, Esther puts on her royal robes, literally rendered in the language. It's literally rendered, she put on her royalty. She is preparing for the moment. She does not dare to approach without appealing to her position. She's walking on a tightrope, if you will, in, in a very real sense. There's not a sense of casualness in anything that she's doing. She knows that she needs the king's favor. And so she puts on, verse 1, her royal robes. Her clothing is communicating that she is the king's counterpart. Her clothing is communicating that she is respecting the office, his and hers, and that she wants to see him. In a sense, she's matching his royal appearance. And when she comes in, she's reminding him, I'm not just any woman, Xerxes. Although, in Xerxes' life, there were many women, as uncomfortable as that is to say. She's putting on her royal robes. And remember, chapter 4, verse 11, she's not seen him in the past 30 days. That's her response to Mordecai when he is urging her to go to him. She makes clear that I, I've not even seen him. I've not talked to the king. It's been over a month. So we see Esther prayerful, but we also see her deferential. And her deference is seen in her calm demeanor. Esther comes into the presence of the king, and she shows deference through how she handles herself. She is controlled. She is calm. She is respectful. Notice verse 1, on the third day that Esther put on her royal robe, she stood in the inner court, not demanding, not knocking down the door, respectfully, at a distance where he can see her. Her life hangs in the balance. Xerxes is unstable. We've already painted that portrait. So she's standing there. The tension is in the air. The people who see her know that she's not on the docket for today. What on earth is she doing? And here's, there's so much irony in Esther. Just consider it with me for a moment. In chapter 1, Vashti is called and doesn't come. Here in chapter 5, five Esther is not called, and yet she comes. So much irony in the book. Verse 1 tells us that she stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. One commentator says this, The two words, and stood, must not be overlooked. This was an act of the breaking of the law by standing in the king's court without having been called. Esther has come to her moment of truth. She publicly had confronted the king. And you said, now wait a second, that doesn't sound very deferential. Well, I think we see her deference in how she's handling her breaking of the law. She's doing it respectfully. She's doing it in all the ways that she can, but she's doing it to save her people. Esther knows and employs 
protocol, process. One of the things that we see is that maybe in the season of prayer and fasting, the Lord opened her heart like he does for many of his servants as they seek his face and ask him for wisdom. And it reminds us of Proverbs 25, verse 6. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the palace of the grave where it is better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Jesus' teaching in Luke 14, verse 8, says this. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, that he may say to you, friend, move up, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exhausted. Much prayer Esther has needed and has been exercising. One more for us, Proverbs 23, verse 1 and 2, regarding protocol and carefulness and wisdom. Proverbs 23, 1, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, notice here, observe carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Passages of Scripture that give us insight and instruction regarding these processes and needing the wisdom of the Lord. Well, Esther is wise. She's prayerful. She's deferential. Now, we don't know what all Esther knew as far as her understanding of the history of God's people, but it is safe to assume that Esther knew of many things, of God's truths, His law, His word, just by, by being a Jew. One of the things that I was just giving meditation to was just considering maybe some of the common things that gave Esther confidence and boldness in this moment was remembering the promises of God, promises that every Jew would know. We're not trying to enter into the devotional life of Esther by any means, but yet these are things that Esther would know that would only assist and give Confidence. And what would some of those things be? Well, for the record, fasting and prayer are practices that the Jews had observed for many, many years. This was a habit of their worship and rhythm. But Esther knew that God, according to Genesis chapter 12, had covenanted with the Jews to deal with their enemies. And this could be such a moment that God would, would do that. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it could be that Esther knew that God, the God of Israel was a forgiving God and would hear his people if and when, as they often would do, humble themselves and pray. Maybe she thought of instances in their history and their past where that had happened. One thing has to be for sure that she saw God's favor and that he had already allowed a remnant of Jews to return to their homeland to begin to rebuild the temple. These are truths and promises that maybe have been a little fuzzy in Esther's mind and life as a, you could say, a lukewarm Jew as has been our estimation. But as she is praying and beseeching the God of heaven, as she is beseeching and praying and fasting and seeking their covenant-keeping God, no doubt these promises of God's acts in the past help to give her a confident resolve for this very tense-filled moment. Do you ever find yourselves in a moment of tension? Do you ever find yourself, maybe we could say, anxious and stressed out? Do you ever find yourself sleepless 
you don't know what to do, just a reminder to us, church, as Christians, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, church, be anxious for nothing, but, now notice the phrasing here, in everything, by prayer and supplication. So, so, so let's just hit pause right there. When we think about things that give us anxiety, that rob us of maybe a assurance or peace, we're talking about typical maybe people, circumstances, those kinds of things. Sometimes in our mind, in our flesh, we can think that this is not big enough for God. Or we can think the other way, this is too big for God. We can think that something is too big for Him because we don't pray. We think we can handle it, and so that's why we're sleepless. What do we do as a church when we struggle in our own individual marriages, or lives, or our parenting, and the decisions and conundrums that we find ourselves in? Well, again, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, what's the result of that? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Listen, I, I don't know all of what happened in Esther's prayer and fasting, but what we do know is she's ready for this moment. And what we do know is that prayer and fasting has brought her to this place of confidence in her covenant-keeping God. And we see a sense of peace. We see a sense of resolve, knowing that, as she has already stated, if I perish, I perish. But if not, that he will use me to bring about many people alive. We find her, as she makes this request, coming before the king, we find her prayerful, deferential, but we also find her Praise God, favored, favored. The text here tells us that when the king saw Esther, she immediately obtained the king's favor. Praise the Lord for favor, amen? There's nothing wrong with favor, and just because there are people who abuse that language, church, pray for it. <laughs> you know, there are, there are so many people that, you know, you say, how are you doing? They'll have a rote response, blessed and highly favored. And the next day when you see them, how are you doing? Blessed and highly favored. Next day, good, well, well amen, absolutely. I'm not mocking that. There are people who can use language so much that it becomes devalued. Sometimes we wonder, do you really mean what you're saying, right? Well, someone says blessed and highly favored, don't let them rob you of the text. Don't, don't let what someone else does keep you from genuinely claiming what is biblical language and action. Now, we've touched on this before, that it's very clear in the Old Testament that God delights to grant favor to his children. But particularly in the Old Testament, when his children would find themselves in difficult moments, the, the Holy Spirit reveals to us, for example, Joseph in the prison obtained favor with the, the jailkeeper. In other words, literally, favor is the idea of someone's heart being turned towards you. Favor is God working to incline someone's heart towards you. We see this again and again. We saw in the book of Ruth that God inclined Boaz's heart to be favorable towards Ruth. We see in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, multiple kings, potentates, rulers, had favor upon Daniel. Let me just be clear. When we talk about biblical favor, it has nothing to do with you. You have a role, no doubt. She put on her royal garb. Yes, we get that. But the idea is, is the ultimate act of favor is, is that it comes from the Lord. It's, it's, an, it's a wonderful thing to say, Lord, if it be your will, would you provide favor for me in your sight? In, in this difficult situation that is causing me to lose sleep, and we're not necessarily standing in the gap of our, for our people like Esther is, we're just touching on this point. The text is clear. She obtains 
favor. And what a beautiful thing. What a, what a wonderful thing. Verse 2, so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. Husbands, we know what this is, don't we? We're in the middle of a work day or whatever, and the love of our life decides to surprise us and brings lunch or something to that effect. We all feel our hearts flip. We, we are regularly, I delight in being in a store, and I'm with my wife. Then I'm checked out in the cereal aisle, and I'm looking at whatever, and then I come around a corner, and boom, there's my wife, and my heart flips just for a second. It's, it's, there she is. That's, that's mine. That's my wife. Favor. That's it. That's what we're talking about. Now you say, LeGrand, you've gotten so far off track. Here's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Xerxes is here in the middle of his day, right? And all of a sudden, he looks up, and there's, there's Esther. And as he sees her, the queen was accepted by the king. He sees her as graceful and elegant. It is his kindness, it is his delight to extend grace to her. The Lord has worked on, behalf, on her behalf and turning his heart towards us. As we saw, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it however he will. The Lord has heard not only Esther's prayer, but he's heard the prayers of his people. It's a reminder that God, as I've said before, has the power to turn the hearts of even the most ungodly of leaders. Verse 2, the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and she, as protocol would warrant, she touched the top of the scepter. Here we see that Esther is receiving by the king this favor and it is the exception to the rule. No doubt there was tension in, in the throne room as people wondered Oh, snap. <laughs> Somebody's about to die today. Esther, why? What are you doing? Esther, 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 what, what is happening here? And yet he extends his scepter to her. Verse 3, and the king said to her, what do you wish? Now, why, why does he start with that? Well, he knows. He knows protocol. He knows her life's at stake. She, he knows she knows her life's at stake. And he knows that she must, if she's coming to him in these circumstances, it must be something worth risking her life for. Verse 3, what do you wish, Esther? What is your request? And whatever it is, it will be given to you up to half the kingdom. Now, while that sounds superlative to us, and it is, it was a common refrain of the day. It was a common refrain of, of response that was superlative and grandiose, yes, but it was meant to express welcome in favor. So, Esther's petition. Secondly, we see Esther's plot. Here, we see the fruit of Esther's prayers and fasting as she begins to hatch her plan. She begins to express this plot before the king. He has expressed a kind gesture to her. Now, Esther, in return, expresses a kind request, a kind gesture. gesture. And what is that? It is an invitation for the king and Haman to attend Wait for it, their favorite thing, well, at least for Xerxes, and that's a banquet. Remember chapter 1, it's just banquet after banquet after banquet. Esther, there are themes in the book, and one of those themes is banquets. Xerxes was a man who loved to be wined and dined. Don't forget that. And so verse 4, Esther knows this. Esther answers, she says, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today, like now, to the banquet that I have prepared for him. 
So, during the days of Esther's fasting, one of the things that the Lord, had, no doubt, had guided her thoughts, what would be the wisest course of action, to go about saving my people alive, well, surely it must begin with a banquet. Knowing Xerxes, knowing the importance of it, no doubt the Lord guided her thoughts and gave her wisdom. But notice the faith that is expressed here in the language of verse 4. If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today. Notice here, to the banquet I have prepared. Friends, that's faith. In a very real way, Esther could have been being buried in the banquet preparations that have already been done completely wasted. That is to say, she has planted her crop and she's praying for the rain that only God can give. Esther has come before the king, exercising faith. No doubt this was interesting to the king, knowing, Esther, you, you've already prepared a banquet, not even knowing what my response would be. Here we see Esther's faith on display, but we also see Esther's wisdom on display. Notice that her invitation plays right into the king's interest, everything we know to be true about him. It plays right into his physical, fleshly interests, but by inviting Haman as well to the banquet, this is wise as well. It, it boosts Haman's pride. Esther is keeping her enemies close. It makes her less suspicious to Haman as well, who has no idea of Esther's intentions or her ethnic heritage or background, and all at the same time, it increases Esther's favor in the eyes of the king because of the king's trust in Haman. Haman is the favored national son at the moment. So what we see here is Esther's wisdom on display, no doubt given by God. She puts herself in the best possible situation to get her request granted. So, come today. Well, is that the only banquet? What happens? Well, we find in verse 5 that one banquet leads to a second banquet. And if we're careful here in the text, we see that there's uh, tension there is drama, and I'll try to draw that out. Verse 5 says this, Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly. In other words, he didn't ask. He just orders that Haman be brought, that he may do, Haman, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Again, what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Well, here again, we find the king offers up to half of his kingdom. And what's ironic is that what Esther wants is right here at the table with them. It seems as if Esther knows this and she's contemplating is now the time to ask for the removal of this man. Notice with me verse 7 that in the language of the text, it's as if Esther begins to offer up exactly what she desires, and then she stops. At least the original language seems to capture this. Many historians, commentators catch this as well. Notice verse 7. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and my, my request is this. All right, that's the, that's the tension. In the original, it's, there's like a sense of a pause. My petition and my request is this. Dot, dot, dot. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition to fulfill my request, then, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I shall prepare for them. And tomorrow, 
I will do as the king has said. That little phrase is this. Commentators hold, and the way they say the original language structure is that it's almost as if Esther hits pause as she's looking Xerxes in the eye. We don't know what this pause is, but again, behold the providence of God if it is as we believe. It's like a statement that is interrupted to where her impromptu plan to reveal what she does desire is stopped and is stayed. Maybe she felt the prompting of God. Maybe there was a look in the king's eye where she realized, yeah, as wives know, this is, this is not the moment. We don't know. But what we do know is that the very thing that will be Haman's instrument of destruction, according to the timeline, is actually not even constructed yet. Begin Again, I just want to point to, see the hidden hand of God in all of this. No doubt that God's timing is perfect, and maybe we can conclude that the timing was not yet right. At least we know it wasn't right according to the way the structure of events actually happened. In fact, we can say this, a lot can happen in 24 hours. You know, Jesus tells his disciples, do not be anxious. Again, going back to that theme, do, be, do not be anxious, do not fret, uh, for the evil that is on tomorrow is sufficient for itself. Just focus on me, walk in faith and humility like a child. I'm summarizing and paraphrasing, paraphrasing that text. And it's true, isn't it? We'll find in the book of Esther, we find often in our lives that a lot can happen in a short amount of time. And what's interesting is that we know this, but Esther doesn't know anything about the gallows or what will happen for, at the rest of the day. She is just about to make her request, and then she seems to stop. And so what does she say? Well, let me invite you to yet a second banquet. Now, that's odd. If you read it, you're just thinking, is she stringing them along? But, well, let's, let's give warrant and let's say this. In God's wisdom and leading, maybe this was a part of the plan all along. Well, notice what we see here. We see Haman's pride come on display. Here in verse 9, Haman leaves the banquet with a renewed sense of, mm, of self-worth of assurance in his power and influence. His narcissism has been stroked, and he is feeling confident in all that is brand Haman. Haman encounters, though, as he walks out of the palace, someone who robs him of all his joy. This is hilarious, by the way. Literally, the whole nation is bowing to him, honoring him, except for one, and his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai's refusal to treat him like a god robs Haman of all his joy. Verse 9, notice, so Haman went out that day from the banquet joyful and with a glad heart. He's been invited to the, the who's who banquet, an audience of one outside of the king himself. He, he sense, feels a sense of advancement on his radar, and yet... Indignation very quickly fills his heart. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that Mordecai did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled. That means to be controlled by. He was taken over with indignation, wrath against Mordecai. This word indignation means a controlling anger, a wrath that consumes, a rage that is expressed. In fact, it's like this, Haman's narcissism immediately comes to the forefront and is on display. Well, what does he do? Verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh, 
Now, this is where it gets really odd. Anger, by the way, does really weird things to people. Uncontrolled indignation, uncontrolled wrath causes men, in, in many senses, experts tell us, we understand from a spiritual standpoint, for sure, to become incoherent. Uh, some, even to the point of insanity. What do you t- talk about crimes of wrath and passion and those types of things? They're just uncontrolled insanity. It causes men to become insane for a moment. Well, one thing we know for sure is his response is odd. Notice, Haman then told his friends and his family of his great riches. Does that not ring to you as odd? It's like, let me come here, friends, and come here, darling, and let me tell you about all that I have. Let me tell you how much is in the bank account. Let me tell you just who I am. And the old adage is true. If you're having to tell us who you are, we've got problems here. If you're having to remind both yourself and us exactly all that you are, it doesn't seem that you are all that you think you are. Verse 11, then Haman told them of his great riches and the multitude of his children, as if his wife doesn't know that, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther this day has invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. What do we have here? What we have here is not so humble brag. Here Haman is making sure that everyone knows of the privileges that have been extended to him. This is the same man that has demanded that everyone but the king bow to him. This is the man who's determined to let everyone know just how great he is. And yet we see that the sins of his pride and of the flesh absolutely consume him. Turn with me just briefly, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Because it's at this point that Haman's sins in his heart lead to actions that will become his undoing. We saw a little bit of that in the passage that was read this evening. And I want to touch on some of that. That was read in the scripture reading. Psalm 33, as you're turning there. Excuse me, Psalm 31 We saw that the prayers of the righteous call out to him, saying, Keep us safe from the schemes of the wicked. Let them be silent in the grave. The call of the righteous man is calling out to the Lord, asking him to protect them from the schemes and the machinations of the wicked, those who have given themselves to idols, useless idols, and desire to take their life. Then, over in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, we see... Just a, a great a cross-reference here. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. What, what, and what is that? A proud look? Check. A lying tongue? Check. Hands that shed innocent blood? Check. A heart that devises wicked plans? Check. Feet that are swift and running to evil? Check. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren here we see that just who is it that Haman is plotting these very things against well it's against the chosen people of God what is the root sin we could ask that drives all of these things notice the first one that's lifted there is a proud look what is a proud look well it's pride pride 
Friends, it's just a reminder to us that pride is really, in one sense, the mother of all other sins. Pride. Warren William Barclay says this, Pride is the ground in which all the other sins grow and the parent from which all other sins come. Well, this pride will be Haman's destruction. Notice with me in our text, Haman begins to form his plans to kill Mordecai. In fact, the only way for him to be happy is to see Mordecai dead. Verse 13, notice what he says. He says, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. By the way, exhibit A for the paradigm that we saw this morning, advancement, worldly advancement. Um, If your advancement means the putting down of others, if your bigness is correlated to others' smallness, listen, we got issues. There's no more sign of the flesh than this. Notice how he has no happiness. His life is on a different track altogether than Mordecai's. But seeing Mordecai in the gate, seeing the Jews sitting in the king's gate, robs him of all of his joy. Verse 14, then his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends said to him, Well, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman, so that he had the gallows made. Haman here begins to form a plot that will change his life. He wastes no time. He orders the gallows to be constructed. Again, in danger and irrationality, anger consumes him. It's on display, and he orders these gallows to be made. Proverbs 14, 29, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Friends, what we find here is in this chapter, Haman begins the very processes of his own execution. The sins of his flesh coming against the people of God, coming against the purposes of God, is a sure death sentence for him. Notice with me, we'll set up chapter 6 in verses 1 through 3. And behold again the providence of God, even in sleeplessness. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, that that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found, written, that Mordecai had told Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended to him said, King, nothing has been done for him. Friends, behold the timing of God. Sleepless nights. Do you ever have sleepless nights? Sure you do. Here the king has a sleepless night, but this is one that no doubt is prompted by the sovereign hand of God. Listen, as Christians, we don't believe in luck. This is not Mordecai's lucky night or lucky day. This, friends, is not karma. And by the way, whenever you find yourself using that dumb language, repent of it, it just, it's a reminder of how influenced we are by the world. We hear the world. We, we hear people say this stuff. All, I, know, I know if I do, I know you do. 
karma. You know, karma, it stinks. They say it a different way. You know how they say it. Karma, yeah. Luck. Listen, friends, we as Christians understand that God is on his throne. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord is in the heavens. He's reigning from his throne. And his sovereignty rules over all. And his sovereignty extends to wonderful nights of restful sleep and also nights of sleeplessness for wicked kings like Xerxes. So what does Xerxes do? Well, he calls for the history books to be brought to him, the books of records. And he's reminded of a man named Mordecai. In fact, it's almost as if he doesn't even know really who Mordecai is in one sense. And he asks this question, that's a big deal. He saved my life from an assassination. Remind me what we did for him. Remind me how we rewarded him, how we honored him. And the king's servants who attended to him, verse 3 of chapter 6, says, nothing has been done for him. Well, friends, this sets up the next plot, the next curtain drop of the story for us. And may the Lord help us as we continue to study his word. I want to give some closing thoughts of application here very briefly. And I want us to go back to the beginning of our study tonight and looking at the process of the spiritual disciplines. And I want to remind us of this. I tried to touch on it even as we walked through it. Church, I want to remind us that God providentially employs ordinary means, ordinary people as they act in faith to do His, we could say, extraordinary work or even miraculous work. It's a reminder to us that as Esther seeks Yahweh, her covenant-keeping God, she seeks Him in the secret place in prayer and in fasting. And this is normal. And friends, I, I'm going to be honest with you, is it, is it normal in our lives? The secret place, the hidden place. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, when Jesus gives his instructions on fasting, one of the key things he targets is motives. And he says the Pharisees fast and they pray to be seen. And he says, but my disciples, my children, because of their motives, they pray, they're praying to a real God and who, who reigns in his throne in heaven, and they're praying to him, not to them. They're doing it in the secret place of the prayer closet because they know that he sees, and they're praying to him. It's not about, they may be praying for them, but it's, but it's to him. The Pharisee, the religious person whose motives are wrong, here's what's so tragic, is they're not praying to him at all. In fact, he's not in the equation. They have co-opted and taken the beautiful gifts of prayer and fasting, and they use it for their glory and for their gain. And who they're praying to is not to him at all. They're praying before them and to everyone who sees so that they may be seen in whatever motives they have in their hearts, as more spiritual, righteous, whatever it is, with esteem, etc., I just want to remind us as a church how wonderful these gifts of prayer and fasting are, that the Lord uses them. We see the tension of both the sovereignty and the providence of God, but we see God's people praying and fasting. We see God working in His will through the means of grace to bring about His will, to shape His people into the image of His Son, to build their faith. In fact, what we see is that when the true Christian, the true child of God is finds himself between a rock and a hard place, you're not thinking about other people at all. You're beseeching God with desperation. 
May the Lord help us to look it into our hearts and say, number one, do I fast ever and pray? When I pray and fast, is it out of a sense of desperation of seeking God's help and power? Or is it to be seen or esteemed before the eyes of other people alone? May it become normalized in our speech, brothers and sisters, to say, I will not only pray for you, but I will fast and pray for you. Would you pray with me about my wayward son or daughter? Would you pray with me about this tension in a work situation? Uh, Would you pray with me about my loss of a job? Brother, sister, I will pray for you. I will pray and I will fast for you. I will take you before the throne of grace. Your hurt will be my hurt. Your, Your tension will be my tension. Your struggle will be my struggle. I will pray and fast for you. You say, why do you say it like that? Well, we have no problem saying, I will pray for you. Why is fasting such a big deal? I'll just say this. When we start fasting, it shows we're serious. When we're willing to put away, and you'll see what my problem is here, when we're willing to put away the bluebell ice cream, it just maybe gives a hint to the Lord that we're, we might be serious about whatever it is we say is very important to us. Well, not only is fasting and praying in vogue here at We've seen in the role, the tension of the providence of God and the decision-making on the, on the scene of the pages of Scripture. But notice there was much wisdom granted to Esther as she is moving in wisdom and strategic planning. It's, it's a reminder to us that some things do not come but by prayer and fasting. Sometimes there's, there's not a breakthrough until these things are done. Now, I'm making some of you uncomfortable, and I, I don't apologize for that. And here's why we maybe get uncomfortable. Because we hear charismatic preachers on TV talk about this stuff to the point where it doesn't mean anything. That's all they talk about. Does that make sense? Like, I said, we're going to manipulate God for our blessing. You know, and in the, they'll talk about it in ways that are so mundane and rote and trite and whatever. It's as if we can manipulate God for our will and purposes. That's, that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is, is seeking God's face and showing Him that we are serious and broken and we're entering into a sense of sobriety. We need Listen, the church today doesn't need less sobriety. It needs more. Our whole world is filled with entertainment and frivolity. And listen, our neighbors and our families and people are going to hell in a handbasket. When, when the Lord looks at the hearts of his disciples, does he find us in the secret place saying, God, I need wisdom. Would you help me? Would you give me insight? Would you give me the best course of action here? When the Lord, who knows all, sees our lives, does he see that whatever it is that's on our heart and minds is not only important, but it's important enough to abstain from his good gifts that he delights to give us? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father uh, that is above. Well, may the Lord apply his word to his people. As we come to the end of the year our church elders will be announcing in the coming days the last gathered time together. It's going to be on Christmas Eve, I believe, if I understand that correctly. Don't quote me on that. There may be that following Wednesday night. Well, whatever it is, our pattern here, here is the last time that our church gathers together. It's a time that we call a solemn assembly. Now, that's unusual language in our modern church, but it's language we don't apologize for. It means we're serious. It means we're grateful. It means 
we're reflecting on all that the Lord has done for us in this past year, answered prayers, prayers that are still unanswered and yet remain with big question marks, needing wisdom and looking ahead to the future. We reflect on 2023 and we're looking ahead into the unknown of 2024, and it's very quickly become a favorite tradition here where we seek the Lord's face. We do things a little bit differently. We pray and we read scripture and we pray and we read scripture, and then leading up to it, we're fasting. We're seeking his face, and you'll be seeing more about that in the coming days, but that's our delight. When the Lord looks down and sees his people, does he see a people who are serious about his kingdom, or does he see a people who could take it or leave it? Well, let's ask the Lord to examine our hearts as we prepare for his table. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for guiding us and teaching us today and helping us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will take the feeble teaching that has been done all throughout the day today, and Lord, build up your church, strengthen your people. Would you give us a sense of courage and boldness, peace and assurance? Would you give us a sense of where our light shines and our salt has flavor, even when it doesn't make sense, when people who know our circumstances and the journey and the trial that we're on and it perplexes them. Father, may everything that we do bring you glory and honor. May our lives not make earthly sense, but make heavenly sense. May you give us a courage and a boldness and a trust in you that doesn't make sense to our, our neighbors, our friends, and maybe even our spouses. We pray that you'd bless the teaching and preaching of your word. Father, we pray for our people here this evening who have worshipped you in faith. We know that a week, a new week lies ahead of us, and we are unsure, do not know about all the details of what we will face this week, but Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for faithfulness. We pray for a sense of humility. All of us would do well to decrease in our own eyes and estimations of ourselves and increase in the glory of God. May we say with John, he must increase, but I must decrease. Father, we pray that you would help us to increase in wisdom and humility. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to be your hands, your feet, your servants, to be faithful where you've placed us, where you've called us. We pray that you'd give us words that are fit for the moment, words that are wise as apples of gold and pictures of silver, words that are appropriate and in due season. Lord, as we reflect and remember your sacrifice, the table of the Lord, we pray that you would bless this that you would comfort our hearts. We pray that you would remind us of the glorious gospel of Christ and that we would find our peace and assurance in the finished work of Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.